What's happening, everybody, and welcome back to the Funky Brain Podcast. And we're going to get funky today with a wonderful woman, and I'll introduce her in just a second. But today's episode is brought to you by my good friends, Eric Faddis and Lauren Varner of Varner Faddis Elite Legal. VFAL is a modern law firm in the Denver Tech Center here in Colorado, specializing in personal injury and criminal defense. They're innovative, client-based, and results-oriented. Free consultation, call 720-770-VFAL. 720-770-8335. So our guest today is such an awesome, inspiring woman, sober woman, author, blogger, and host of the Bubble Hour podcast. And she dedicates her life to breaking down the walls of stigma and denial surrounding the disease of alcoholism, which affects well over 50% of the American population. And that's just alcohol. I would offer that most of the other 50% is struggling with some form of other addiction. But we'll talk about that later. But Mrs. Jean McCarthy, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. So, of course, the main reason we connected is our sobriety and recovery journeys. So maybe you could share with our listeners a little about your story, you know, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Okay, well, I like to tell people that I'm the, I was the most boring alcoholic ever. I have no good stories about my drinking days. I really had no fun. I did nothing crazy. What I really was was an um, approval junkie, workaholic, other-focused, lost woman. And how that showed up for me was I just hustle, hustle, hustled all day long. Whatever needed to be done, I did it, plus did a little extra, and um, the world really rewarded that. The world likes a people pleaser. And there's many opportunities to be taken advantage of or to exploit your skills as a people pleaser. So uh, I was very caught up in that. And I suspect there's a lot of women who can identify with that, you know, as moms, as working women, as whatever realm we're in. If we don't have satisfaction in ourselves, we tend to overdo, look outside of ourselves for satisfaction and never feel satisfied because we are, we're never, it's a bottomless pit of need. And so that for me caused um, this real cycle of, of scrambling and hustling all day. And alcohol became really the brick that I put on my head at the end of the day to quickly go to sleep and get that over with and get up and do it all over again the next day. And looking back, I understand I was self-medicating anxiety um, because alcohol is addictive. It worked great, actually, for the first few years as a sleep aid and an anxiety cure, or not cure, but um, number. <laughs> yeah. And um, But of course, it's addictive. And so over time, my bedtime glass of wine became two or three, became fish bowls instead of wine glasses. And I found myself really caught in a pattern and caught in a cycle. Then on top of feeling, why, why is this happening to me? I know I'm working so hard. I'm trying so hard. I'm such a good person. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about being a good person. Right, right. And the gold stars and achieving things. And I'm doing everything right. Uh, but I have this secret addiction on top of things. So then I add on top of that imposter syndrome and it just grew and grew and grew. So uh, I would say I functioned like that for about a decade. And in my early 40s, I just kind of hit a wall where I kept trying to quit drinking every day, 
I would wake up and say, today is going to be the day that I quit drinking. And by noon, one o'clock, two o'clock, looking back now, what do I know? Of course, that's when uh, withdrawal was starting to set in. But in my mind, it made perfect sense that, mm, you know what, today can't be the day. Today can't be the day that I quit. I can't quit today. We have dinner guests tonight or, oh, I just accomplished something at work or it's a great day. I need a drink. It's a bad day. I need a drink. And so the cycle continued. I just had this, I guess, God shot or universal awakening that I was on a trajectory that ends in death for a lot of women. I wasn't anywhere near death, but I knew I was headed that way because I was I felt like I was in a skid, you know, I kept waiting for rock bottom, Dennis, and I, it didn't seem to be near. Um, I was still functioning, but I was getting worse and worse and worse. And I was trying to quit and getting worse. So I was imagining all these rock bottoms, you know, am I going to crash my car and get hauled off to jail? Is that what it's going to take for me to quit? Am I going to hurt somebody else? Is that what it's going to take? Is it, is it going to deteriorate to where my family has to do an intervention? I mean, your listeners may have been to those places. They know those places. I've heard a friend since said, you know, alcohol wants to kill you, but it'll settle for making you miserable. I didn't want the miserable. And it was an epiphany to realize I can just quit. I can just stop now. You don't have to smoke a pack of cigarettes a day before you quit. You can say half a pack is enough and just quit because it's killing you. You don't have to say, gosh, I've got to, I've got to get up to 300 pounds before I can take charge of my health, right? So no, we don't have to hit a rock bottom either with alcoholism. For people that have had a rock bottom experience, I think it's harnessed and it can be helpful to help them push against that. Like pushing against the side of a pool gives you momentum. And I think a lot of programs harness the power of a rock bottom as something to push against to help keep you sober. But I don't think it's essential. And not realizing that was an epiphany for me that I could just quit. So I did the one thing that I had never done before. And that was, I told someone the truth. When I went for a hike with a friend and told her, I drink every day, I drink more than I want to, I drink myself to sleep every night, I can't quit, it's getting worse, not better, and I'm afraid, and I think I need to quit. You know what, it's been nine years and I still feel it in my body, I have the lump in my throat as I tell you that, because it was such a profound experience to tell the truth. And I was very good at spinning the story that I felt that people wanted to hear from me, you know, but to actually tell someone the truth in the light of day and risk rejection and risk um, judgment and criticism. Oh, that was uncomfortable. And thank God I chose the right kind of a person to tell too. I didn't tell that to an enabler. I chose someone who I knew would give it to me straight and she said, yeah, you're right. That's serious. I can see why you need to get a hold of that. And that's, that's what it took. And so that was thing one that I did. I told the truth. Thing two was that I sought out accountability. For me, that was writing a blog. I live in a small city and a business owner. And so my ego was telling me a story that I couldn't possibly go to a 12-step meeting because I was far too important, you know, far too well-known. And um, now I know that that's a little trick that addiction plays on us. So I was scared to go and I didn't go. I now know I could have, and I do now go to meetings and find great support there. But at the time, 
I sought out support online and there is support online. For me, it was enough. And so I wrote my story online. I found other people to encourage and support me. And then over as a few days unfolded, I started to have this amazing experience that I didn't know I needed, which was other people asking me for help. And helping others is a really great, wonderful, important part of recovery. And so those things unfolded in my life. And the timing was such, it was 2011, that blogs were still pretty happening. And especially recovery blogs, there wasn't a ton of them around. And so my blog Unpickled actually got quite a lot of traction and, um, and grew pretty quickly. And this is one of the sort of original uh, recovery blogs that's still going. And, uh, and then I got involved in a podcast a couple of years later, and I now host that podcast where I hold space for people to tell their stories, just like you're doing for me right now. That, of course, is another really important part of recovery is just hearing our story and other people. Everyone that comes on the bubble hour, and I even had this thought myself this morning before joining you, Dennis, was that there's nothing special about my story. There's nothing exciting about it. There's nothing important or uh, proprietary about my story. And everyone thinks that. And they're like, why do you want to hear my story? It's not that exciting. But that's what makes it so important is that that's right. There's nothing that different about any of us. And when we hear ourselves in each other, it could be that someone listening doesn't have a problem with alcohol, but they might be hearing themselves in my story in terms of feeling lost in their own life. And maybe it's showing up in other ways, uh, acting out, you know, uh, in relationships or with anger or with shopping or any of those other things. So just when we share our truth and when we stand in our truth, we help others and we help ourselves. And so that's, that's what I do. Well, that was awesome. There was so much stuff in there that the main thing, like you said, is that um, it's important to share your story because you never know when somebody's listening that is in the same boat and that mm-hmm. thinks they're unique. And that mm-hmm. they think that they can't ask for help because what are people going to think? Can you share some of those struggles that you had to overcome to get to where you are today? Some things that I have gone through. Um, so in the years since I've quit drinking, my husband and I are business owners and we had a, a big home building company and we were a busy business and it was a heavy heavy load. Um, You know, we would always have 12 or more houses under construction, many, many parcels of land that we would have to buy before we could build. I mean, the pressure, the employees, the sales, the show homes. So we saw that our industry was turning and made the very difficult decision to retire 10 years earlier than we planned, which meant 13 people who thought they had another decade of employment with us had to be let go. Our relationships with our trades, who we'd worked with for 25 plus years, uh, we had to let them know that we were going to retire. I mean, this impacted a lot of people. Even though we knew it was the right thing to do, it felt like public failure. And that was really hard. And thank God I was sober. And thank God I had done some work on myself by that point. Because I really think that that experience could have really done a lot of damage to me had I still been active in my addiction at that time. Because as I say, my alcoholism for me was a symptom of my codependence, my reliance on other people to tell me who I am. And having worked on that, I wasn't as dependent on my company to be a symbol of who I was. I had to really unhook from that and get into my own life and into my own self. And 
hold my head high and move forward and build a life that's really about me, that's about my family, and that's true. And it wasn't that our company and our business wasn't true. It was that it was an aspect of my identity that I hid behind. And to me, it felt like a suit of armor that I wore all the time. And I felt like I was, imagine if you're wearing a suit of armor and you're sweating inside of it, you'd be kind of like raisiny as if you'd stayed in the pool too long. That's how I felt. I felt like real me was, was like raisiny. Uh, what would the word be? Wrinkled. Wrinkled and like Wrinkled, yeah. icky inside of this suit of armor. And um, recovery has helped me take off the armor and expose who I really am and live authentically. And so that really aligned nicely with this enormous career slash identity change that I had. So that's one thing. Um, in 2017, my father passed away and so did my father-in-law within a few months of each other. And they were in their 80s and it wasn't unexpected. They both had chronic illness. I had some unfinished business with my father that we were never able to resolve. My recovery lent itself well to that as well. Uh, it was just, it was a hard time. It was a really painful time. You know, I did cry myself to sleep every night for a long time, as we do when we lose someone that we love or when we have something that's painful, it's unresolved, and now it will forever be unresolved. <laughs> we have to live with that. That was painful, but I moved through it and moved on. And so I really think that for me, uh, that happened a little more quickly than it did for some other people close to me who did use alcohol as kind of a numbing agent to numb their emotions through that. I think it might have taken them longer to, to get through that. So those are a couple hard things. The other thing is that, I don't know if this happens to you, every year on my anniversary of my sobriety, which for me is in March, I, it, I didn't know it at first. I thought it was real, but eventually I identified it as a pattern. Every year I have this little rebellion where I feel, I call it a wobble, like I feel wobbly. I feel like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And I think it's the, the flipping of the calendar where I just, my brain wants to say, am I done yet? Am I done with this? Is this over yet? Can I be done being a sober person now? Can I just be like everybody else? And um, now when that happens, I know, oh yeah, look at that. My anniversary is coming up and my brain is doing that thing. And, and so I just have a little chat with myself and remind myself that, you know, I don't think there's really anything to be gained by going back to drinking, even if it was possible for me to drink without re-entering an addictive cycle, I don't think it would add anything to my life. And certainly I'm in my fifties, I'm, uh, I'm in menopause. You probably don't want to talk about menopause, but so hormonally at this age, there's lots of changes going on. Um, risks of breast cancer, esophageal cancer, I think colon cancer, all of these cancers are greatly reduced by being alcohol free. I had my gallbladder out a few years ago and the doctor said, oh gee, uh, by the way, you're not going to be able to drink alcohol. You shouldn't drink alcohol without a gallbladder. I'm like, hey, good news not a problem. So there's all these wonderful benefits of not drinking. And so I can, I can remind myself of that. I mean, we choose this life every day. I have really talked to a lot of people who have tried that experiment and it doesn't go well. Sometimes it happens shockingly quickly. Um, some people say the disease does push-ups, which is to say that um, the 
the you you pick up where you left off you know you, you you don't ramp up i mean i ramped up for decades but you 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 go back really quickly to where you left off and, and other people do find they can coast for a while but when something happens like a career change or the death or illness of a loved one whatever big thing speed bump comes along you know there's your old buddy just waiting in the wings for you to lean a little too hard on the old crutch so i'm pretty i'm pretty happy just staying this way and um i think my life is better my health is better what i love the most dennis is that you know i mentioned earlier that i couldn't drive in the evenings because i was legally impaired by you know probably 8 p.m every night so i had some reason why i couldn't leave the house um, I love the freedom that I have now, but also I really love that my family can count on me. And so as I mentioned, my, my sons were in their late teens when I quit drinking and my oldest son got married really young. He got married at 19 and, uh, and he's still married 10 years later. So good, good on him. But I remember being at his wedding and, uh, and it was in the last few months of my drinking and thinking, oh man, if these kids have a baby, no one should ever leave a baby with me. Like grandma can't babysit. That bothered me enormously. And it was one of the big motivators for me to get sober. Uh, by the time my first grandchild was born, you know, I was a couple of years sober by then. And now there's three of those little rascals. And my kids know they can call me anytime, night or day. They never have to worry about what kind of shape I'm going to be in. I might be grumpy, I might be tired, but I'm not going to be impaired. And so the recovery is a transferable skill, and I, I think it spills over into my family. And to me, that's really the best part. I love the life that I live right now. I love the woman that I am. And I think all of that hustle and validation I was seeking earlier, it just quietly lives in me now. Tons of messages and everything that you're saying. But one of the greatest gifts really in sobriety is the ability to be present mm -hmm. for just present in general, present for your loved ones, present, accountable, you know, and capable to be accountable. You know, because I, I said the same thing back in my drinking days in my 20s, mostly it was I lived in the mountains. I'm an old ski guy. So I used to live for 10 years up there and I knew I was messed up. So I wasn't around kids and families. I didn't even have credit cards because I knew I was messed up. I didn't want to mess things up. So um, I just kind of hit. I think the, the best message of everything that's been going on with what you've been talking about right now, you know, when you get sober. When you stop drinking, when you stop using drugs or stop whatever it is that you're doing, um, it's not so much about not drinking or not doing drugs. It's about growing up. Mm -hmm. It's about learning how to look the world in the eye. It's learning how to feel and being okay with feeling. You know, when I, when I was a kid, my grandmother told my mom, he worries like a little old man. Aww. You know, when I was five years old, I was already worrying like that. I already had these fears and security that was full of this fear of the world at five so when you get to 15 then I started drinking and I was like I could breathe you know that boot came off my chest I was like I didn't have to feel that way anymore I didn't have to feel at all anymore so what happened was then I you know I did that for 15 years and then you you take and this is why most people fail in their 30s and 40s and 50s in sobriety is because well it's hard right but then what it is is that you took away my coping skills you took away my ability to handle death, divorce, 
uh, heartache, financial problems, health, pro like all these things that the rest of the world deals with, but they just deal with it. I never learned how to. So I think the important thing, like everything you were talking about was the growth, how you're able to walk through anything that happens in your life, because that's the real goal of mm -hmm. sobriety, of addiction recovery, is to be able to look the world in the eye and grow up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this is like basic skills. I just never got those skills. You know, there was a, there was this guy back in years ago, he used to say, um, when I used to go to AA a lot, he used to say, welcome to kindergarten. <laughs> That's all this is. There's a bunch of skills. Like my sister, who's three years younger than me, she used to be like my real life sponsor mentor person. And she still is my best friend. In fact, all this stuff, heartache stuff I'm going through right now, I call her all the time and I'm like, you know, I feel sad today. And she goes, it's okay to be sad. Yeah. Feel that. Yeah. And you know, you called your addiction, your coping skill, or you called alcohol, your coping skill. It wasn't a coping skill. It was a pause button. Yeah. You weren't, you weren't coping at all. You were hiding, numbing, masking. So the stuff was still there. And that is the problem. And I think it's, so it's a little bit of a labeling issue, really. I mean, it's amazing how much of our recovery comes down to language. And when we do go to meetings, whether it's 12-step or any of the other programs that are out there, we learn some new language. And there's all of these uh, annoying but wonderful cliches in 12-step recovery. You know, it's simple, but it's not easy. Or, you know, all these things that you're like, oh, it's such a cliche, and it's so true. It is, <laughs> and yeah. they're helpful. And because a lot of the problem is the language that we use in our self-dialogue that yes. our addictive brain whispers in our ear constantly telling us, you know, you're this, you're that, you're not this, you're not that, you feel this way, you need this, you deserve this. Um, this is fine. You're fine. You know, I mean, isn't that one of the greatest lies ever? I'm fine. But then we also now have a, a tremendous marketing machine aimed at us and the alcohol industry has really zeroed on zeroed in on women in particular in the last few years and the whole mommy juice and wine culture and you know you can go online and there's literally hundreds of tank tops with like funny little you know we'll run for wine um you know cutesy sayings that are all part of this normalization of alcohol culture and um the overall effect of that is messaging that you need this it's fine it's okay it's normal it's fun it works and really you know none of that's true and no necessary. it's not true yeah you're right about that marketing machine it, it really is like if you think about like the way that you can buy these things now like a box of wine nobody needs a box of wine or like when i stopped drinking they were coming out with the 30 packs of beer Nobody needs a 30-pack. And we used to I buy mean, our own. Is it a wedding? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Are you serving 100 people? Why do you need that much? Right. Well, and you know, when I, when I started buying wine by the box instead of by the bottle, um, that was a bit of a clunk moment for me. You know, like my, my alcohol patterns kind of went along and clunked. You know, I kind of hit another level. <laughs> um, because for me buying by the box was partly about consuming more but it was also about hiding it more easily you know that darn bottle was always in the door of the fridge and the whole family could open it up and if they cared to notice see how much was in it mm -hmm. um, but with a box 
uh, they couldn't do that so easily. And especially when I had another one hidden in the laundry room, right? And I could hide it from myself too. So yeah, you're right. It's, we're being enabled in so many ways, you know, and there's all these shields. I, I talked about armor, you know, those tank tops with the cutesy saying, that's another shield that you hide behind it. And I'll tell you, it, it's a great day when you take all that crap, the, the, whatever the paraphernalia is in your house. That's like, you know, I can't quit drinking because my sister gave me this cute t-shirt that, that we laugh every time <laughs> I wear it. You know what? Throw that out. Or the special wine glass. Yes. With your name engraved on it. Yes. I can't quit drinking. What will I pour in my wine glass? (laughs) It's my, you know, it's so-and-so's wedding is coming up and I want to toast them with champagne. You know, all of that stuff. That's all just stuff. Yeah, that's our subconscious mind. That that our subconscious mind, which drives over 80% of what we do. says you know what i think that's okay if you do that because that's what we're used to doing yeah. you know it doesn't say oh you know this might not be a good idea because you're not doing really well your subconscious mind wants to keep you where you are right yeah. and so it's like really tricky to get in there and reprogram the subconscious mind it takes a little work and it takes like it takes effort and commitment and time to do that and so it's like what to get back to that question i asked earlier it's like you don't just quit drinking and life just unfolds into this perfect thing. It takes time. Remember it's a hundred miles into the woods. It's a hundred miles back out. But the good news is, is that the hundred miles, the trip on the way out, it doesn't have to take as long or be as painful as that trip on the way in. But, um, but it is, but it could be a painful process and you you just kind of have to get through it sometime. Like I said, when I, when I tell my sister, I'm sad, she's like, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to not feel comfortable for a little while. It's okay to get a little angry and then figure it out and turn it around. It's okay to get a little fearful and then figure it out and turn it around. You know, switch to love or switch to faith or whatever it is. It's okay to feel. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while to get comfortable doing that. And you can get really comfortable doing that and then somebody can die or your relationship is over. Like I'm going through some really tough stuff right now. You know, I thought I was doing really well. Like I coach people and teach people how to manage their life and master their life and you know get into a recovery and stay sober and manage their lives and I wasn't managing mine as well as I thought I was and here's mm-hmm. a guy I've been sober a long time and uh, I thought I had everything under control and I was way off the mark so it's like it's just keep growing to new levels of awareness yeah mm-hmm. and we we don't we we aren't experts at this. Like no one's an expert. Even the, the best sponsor or the, the best therapist, we need other eyes on our work, on our internal work. And as a writer, I know this. I need someone else to look at my work or I need a program to help me spell check my work because I can't see it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I have heard from so, so many people that are in the health industry, whether they're social workers or therapists or doctors, uh, nurses who are so ashamed of their struggles and their addiction because they feel like they're supposed to know better. Or, you know, if anyone knew that I'm a therapist and I'm in recovery, how, you know, they would laugh at me and I tell them, it's okay, you know this, your brain is telling you it's not, it's leveraging your doubt. Yes. In order to keep you addicted. Well, and, and it also makes us qualified to help because we've been through it. 
Yeah, exactly. And we don't always need an expert to tell us exactly what to do. Sometimes we need someone who will just hold space for us to talk because as we as we tell our story, we figure it out ourselves. When we're telling it to another person versus the little chatter in our head, it goes through some other part of our brain that helps us sort it all out. Yeah, that, that's a great way to put that. Yeah, because when I'm, you know, because I coach people and it doesn't, I'm not coaching from up here, right? Yeah. And that's important for them to realize that. And I tell them that too. It's like, I'm not telling you stuff my thing is to guide you you know and i love this there's a great little meme with there's this guy down in this hole you know and he's like i'm i don't know how i got in this hole and i'm never going to get out of here and then there's a guy standing on top of the the hole and he said hey i was in that hole a couple months ago here give, let me tell you how i got out of there you know so that's all this is we're helping each other get through this and um you know it doesn't mean i'm better than you it just means that I've been through it and I'm going to show you how I got through it. And maybe along the way you can learn something that will help you not have to struggle so much. And that's why we're having this talk today. It's just to be helpful. Like you never know who you're going to reach. You never know when we can keep somebody from maybe committing suicide or homicide or just being depressed, you know, and help them become more productive in their lives and happier and healthier. And so that's really why I do all this. I don't do all this for the money. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do it because I love reaching out to people and helping people because I almost died hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, in rehab, they were like, write down how many times you think you drove drunk. And I think it was like over 3,000 times. And I'm not saying like, oh, I had an extra beer at happy hour. I'm talking about like close one eye to stay on the road drunk. You know, and I used to struggle with why am I here? And you hear about some little kid walking across the street and gets wiped out. And I struggled with that for a long time. But then I realized that the reason I'm here is to help people. It's, and it's the reason all of us are here is to be of service. Mm -hmm. It helps keep us sober. You know, there, there's that. It helps keep us sober and it helps keep us humble. Yes. And I think that we all are holding a mirror for one another. So I wrote this most recently, this poetry book called The Ember Ever There. And this is poems about change, grief, growth, recovery, and rediscovery. One of my, they're all my favorite poems, but one of my favorite poems in the book is called Chairs in a Circle. And it's about this special relationship that we have with other people in recovery. And it talks about coming to this sort of in-between place that we didn't know existed, where we just hold a mirror up for one another and we can tell our truth. I don't really care what you're like outside of that circle. You know, um, if we were if we were family members, it would matter to me um, what your table manners are, for example. <laughs> but in that in that group, none of that matters. And because we're there for one thing, and that is how are you doing? Are you sober? Do you need help? Do I need help? Let's we're here for that one thing and all of the other stuff that does matter in the outside world and needs to matter in the outside world, it's set aside. And for that period of time, we just gather for that purpose. And we can tell our truth because there's no need to hide. There's no image to protect. There's no business to promote. It's okay to show your flaws in that kind of a group or in that, with that kind of a relationship. If I see you six months from now, 
I know that you're not going to be the same person I met six months ago because you're a person who's in recovery, which means you're always working on yourself and you're always trying to grow or trying to stay aware and on top of the things that you need to work on. Whereas your family will be like, Oh, Dennis, you were always like that. You always used to do that thing. And now you're still doing it. Whereas your recovery friends will say like, how's it going with that thing? Right? So we don't want to peg each other. We just are there to see where are you at today? Did you slide back a little bit? That's okay. Let's pull you forward. Are you moving forward? Yay. Tell us how you did it. It doesn't exist in the world. It's this in-between space. And it's really special. Anyone that's watching right now or listening to my podcast or your podcast, they're witnessing it and it's new. It is often new for people and it's fascinating because, I mean, here we are, we've never met before and I've told you all of this stuff about myself and vice versa. I mean, there's just no small talk and there's no BS. No, it's an no. incredible way to have a relationship. In fact, I, there's a bunch of other people that I, we've done, I've done this with. And we're like best friends now. Like Arlena Allen, she's on the ODAT chat. Love her. She's beautiful. She's like my best friend now. We're, we talk all the time. We're like texting and just like, she's been helping me with my little crisis I'm going through right now. And, and, and it was the same thing. Like we taught, we had our podcast episodes like at 40 minutes, I think. And then we talked for like another hour and a half and we just sat there and talked. Like we have this uh, connection that's unique and priceless. Well, this has been so awesome. Maybe we could do it again, or I can come on your podcast. Do, yes. I hope you will. That would be wonderful. But anyway, awesome. Yeah, so again, and I see you have other books in the background there. I do. So I also have uh, another book. It's the first in a series. This is the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide. <laughs> and uh, so it is a book about staying alcohol-free during the festive season. And it touches everything from you know family events to going out, socializing, telling people about your recovery or not telling them. Um, so it's a really handy little tool as well. And I'm actually working on a, a whole series of unpickled guides for different aspects of recovery. So there should be one or two of those coming out every year for the next little while. So awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. And so again, your podcast is the bubble hour and you can, where can people listen to that? It's everywhere. It's on iTunes, uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find the bubble hour. Uh, my blog is Unpickled, and that's unpickledblog.com. I'm on Instagram, Jean McCarthy Wright. So Instagram and Facebook are probably the best places to catch me. And my books are on Amazon, or you can order them wherever you order your books. Uh, they're ebook or print. Thank you so much, Jean. This has been so awesome, and um, and I look forward to doing it again sometime. And thanks everybody for tuning in to the Funky Brain Podcast. Have a great day today. If you want to talk to either of us feel free to reach out and we'll be happy to talk. Bye. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. So you can't think your way into a new way of acting. You have to act your way into a new way of thinking and being. Hi, I'm Dennis Berry, best-selling author, speaker, and life coach for addiction recovery. So many people are stuck in their addiction, whether it's like drugs or alcohol or food or shopping or sex or money, and they think they could just stop or try to figure it out on their own, but they don't change anything in their lives. Nothing changes if nothing changes. 
In order for change to happen, you have to change something. My clients will be like, oh, I'll stop tomorrow, or if this happens, then I stop, or someday I'll just give it up. And then they just sit around and think, 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 and hope for different or better results, but it doesn't happen. You have to take action. Action most people aren't willing to take. People don't become willing until they're in enough pain, me included. And unfortunately, they wait, and they wait and time passes by. Even if you are willing, you don't even know where to begin. And that's where I come in. In my best-selling book, Funky Wisdom, A Practical Guide to Life, I talk about the how approach. How do I get sober? How do I stop doing drugs? How do I become healthier? How do I have more successful relationships? How do I become more financially successful? And the answer is how. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I have to honestly admit that there's a problem. I have to honestly admit that things aren't going well and there needs to be changes. And then once I do that, the door opens and I become open to seeing new ways of living. And then I become willing to make those changes. You can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. That's why I'm here to help. And you know, I've been working with clients for over 15 years and helping them get clean and sober and change their lives and achieve inner peace and success. If you or somebody you love is struggling and doesn't know where to begin and how to make those changes to get to where they need to be, give me a call. Not tomorrow or in a week from now when you're hungover and your life is falling apart. Call now. Start making that change today and you'll be glad that you did. I'm sending you love and good vibes. Have a great day today.